heroes, popes in hard times. Pope Gregory the Great, 540 to 604. Father of medieval Christianity, doctor of the church, the first monk to be elected pope. One day, I called a brilliant holy priest friend complaining about the attacks against the church and our country. His advice to me was, don't despair. The world and the church have been under attack for generations, and we are still here. To study the history of the world, especially Europe, is to discover the history of the church. For the church has always played an integral part in the annals of history, as she continues to follow her master Jesus Christ, who told the apostles, I will be with you till the end of the world. For since the children of God are living in the world, then so must the happenings of the world be intertwined with Mother Church as her children are affected by the world they live in. The way the Lord protects us and saves us from the enemy is to send down from heaven a powerful man or woman, a super saint, who is the right instrument for the job at the time when he or she is needed the most. Rome and Italy under siege. We want to share a little of what was going on in the world of the 5th century. The world was in a turmoil. This was the beginning of the end of the Western emperors. The collapse of the Roman Empire begins with Italy being taken over by one barbarian army, placing Italy under the thumb of the Eastern emperors of Constantinople, only to be invaded and ravaged by another barbarian, the Ostrogoth Theodoric, who would rule Italy from Rome, from 493 until his death in 526. We are now in the 6th century, and we see yet another war brewing. Seeing Theodoric's demise as an opportunity, we meet another conqueror, Emperor Justinian. He wanted to bring back to Rome some of the glory that he had during its magnificent days. He was determined to reclaim North Africa and Italy from the Goths for the Western Roman Empire. He went about it by sending the ominous Belisarius with his Greek armies, who set out by first plowing through North Africa triumphantly, and then focusing his sights on Italy. He went on to invading Sicily. That engagement successful, he was on to Rome and the rest of Italy. This Italian war lasted from 535 to 553. Through the tenacity of Belisarius, Justinian accomplished what he had set out to do, reestablish the glory that was Rome. But not to know any respite, Rome was once again invaded by the gods, with the fierce Totila now leading the charge, laying waste anything or anyone in his way, with nothing less than the occupation of Rome in mind. The new charging hordes looted everything in sight, destroying that which they could not take. Cities after cities were laid waste, along with the farms and the tiny villages. There was an anger and helplessness, which made monsters out of otherwise good people, trying to cope with the famine which was widespread. And so, as a direct result, we find Rome and the rest of Italy attacked, now from within, with rioting and all forms of chaos. People were almost out of their minds, not knowing where to turn. And to compound the cross they were forced to carry, an epidemic spread throughout the countryside, claiming those who had not died through starvation and mistreatment. Tossed from conqueror to conqueror, 
the 500 citizens of Rome who were left alive suffered the worst persecution and horrible deprivation. All their crops confiscated by the invading armies and that which they couldn't take burnt and destroyed, the suffering citizens were reduced to near starvation. For the gods, the sweet taste of victory and conquest was to be short-lived. General Belisarius returned and once again led the charge, forcing the gods to retreat. Once again, the victor, the intoxicating smell of conquest for Belisarius, was to be as fleeting as a breath of fresh air on a hot, smoldering day. The emperor Justinian replaced Belisarius with Narcissus, another general. This was not a good move because he gave the gods the opportunity to recapture Rome, which they did. For the poor citizens of Italy, their lives were like living on a seesaw. Each day, some new tragedy befell them. It must have felt like the sun will never shine on them and their land again. What with being under the subjugation of one emperor after another, one conqueror replacing the one before, raising havoc and despair, it seemed even Mother Nature was against them. A great feeling of despair overtook the land, and God's children cried. This is where God comes in. Well, he's always there. He always helps us. During this terrible time, he gave us St. Benedict, who, according to tradition, had an encounter with the goth conqueror Totila. The vile and murderous tyrant Totila the Goth, spreading his evil ways throughout the Roman Empire, finally came to central Italy and St. Benedict. Now Totila had heard of Benedict's miracles and prophetic gifts, and he thought he would test him. So he took Regal, the captain of his guards, and dressed him in his regal purple robes, the color of royalty, and sent him to Benedict at Monte Cassino, along with three counts from his court who always escorted him. But the disguise did not fool Benedict, who upon Regal appearing before him, addressed the impostor. My son, why are you wearing these robes as they do not belong to you? Rigo fled and reported what had transpired to Totila. Upon hearing his testimony, Totila went in haste to visit St. Benedict. It is written that when Totila appeared before Benedict, he was in such awe and wonder, he fell prostrate before him. Benedict, in his always charitable heart, after inviting him to stand several times, rose and helped Totila to his feet. Benedict spoke severely and prophetically. It is time you ceased your vile and contemptible conduct. You are doing much evil, and much evil you have done. You will enter Rome, you will rule for nine years, and on the tenth you will die. Totila remained alarmed and never forgot the prophecy. It was as if he were getting another chance. He went about altering his rule, lending more clemency to his sentencing. It came to pass, as Benedict prophesied, Totila reigned for nine years and died on the tenth year in 542 A.D. God raises up a saint for this time. God's children were suffering. Never leaving us alone into this topsy-turvy world, God sent us a future saint whose voice will ring strong down through the ages, summoning God's children to pray and believe in the one true triune God, who is with us, who loves us, 
who we can trust. This future saint God was raising up, who was destined to be one of the most powerful popes the world will know, was sent to strengthen the church he had founded, to guide his most precious lambs that they not wander and get devoured by wolves. A child was born preordained to serve Mother Church from a family who had given the church two popes preceding him in his family's history. A blessed, awesome ancestry, worthy of one who will be called to fill the chair of Peter. Not only that, but this special child will one day be declared doctor of the church and go down in church history as one of the most integral forces responsible for the implementation of the beliefs of our Catholic faith, that which we have believed from the time of Christ, in this way guiding Mother Church in her pursuit to follow the directives of our Lord, who had commissioned her to bring the truth to the world. In his role as Pope, Gregory was responsible for formulating the structure of the Church as we know it today. Without his powerful and faithful directives, the Church of medieval times may never have grown into the ongoing, inextinguishable guiding light of the world she is till today. He was the most instrumental father of the early Church. Saints beget saints. In the year 540, our future Pope Gregory was born into wealth and position, but more importantly, he was born into a very pious Christian family. Although an important man of state, with extensive estates, a patrician of great wealth and holdings, his father, Gordianus, was a man of deep faith. He enjoyed all the homage due a senator, but soon after his son Gregory was born, he retired. He renounced the world and died one of the seven cardinal deacons who were in charge of the seven ecclesiastical districts of Rome. Gregory's mother, Silvia, consecrated herself solely to God and would one day be honored as a saint. His two aunts, his father Giordano's two sisters, Tarsila and Emiliana, will be canonized. All this, once again, bringing to light our belief that saints beget saints. Gregory was destined from the very beginning to become a saint. His name in Greek means watchman, and that he will become, watchman of the faith and the church, which Jesus founded to uphold that faith he left us. As a young student, Gregory diligently applied himself to his studies, delving deeply into such subjects as grammar, rhetoric, and philosophy, excelling in all of them, not only in them, but then in his studies in civil law and canon law. Gregory feels the call to sainthood. All his biographers rave at the brilliance of the young man. During his father's lifetime, he studied law, anticipating that he would follow his father in public life. But he could feel the nagging at his heart to abandon the world and enter religious life. He really wanted to be a hermit. However, at the young age of 33, in the year 573, Gregory was appointed by Emperor Justin the Younger, Governor and Chief Magistrate of Rome. In his role as Chief Magistrate, he was obliged to don the finery due his station, with all his velvets and jewels adorning his robes, but as he confessed many times, he abhorred it, favoring the humble habits of the holy monks. He could not remember a day from the time of his earliest childhood he did not desire the gifts from above 
and detest the fading treasures of the world. His greatest delight was conversing with monks and spending quiet, contemplative time praying in church or in the quiet of his home studying scripture. From the time he was a young boy, he would listen to his elders, drinking in the spiritual treasures they will impart. Now he was a grown man and his arms were being pulled almost out of their sockets by the snares of the world on one side and the call to sainthood on the other. After much prayer and soul-searching, for the life of Prefect of Rome had its own source of glamour and awesome respectability, Gregory decided to give it all up and become a monk. It was the year 574 and his father had just died. His father dead, Gregory took his father's estates in Sicily and built six monasteries. He granted endowments for their upkeep and then he founded a seventh monastery in his own home in Rome on the Caelian Hills, which became well known as the Monastery of St. Andrew. It was in this monastery that at 35 years old, in the year 575, Gregory will receive the habit of a monk. Gregory lived a period of peace and solitude. Now Gregory, for the next three years, immersed in the quiet contemplative life of the monastery, dug once again into his studies, only now of sacred scripture. Desiring to live fully the life of a monk, he plowed full stream ahead, surpassing the rigorous fasting of the other monks in his monastery. His extreme fasting caused such serious problems with his stomach, debilitating him so that at times, if he failed to eat often, he was known to lose consciousness. One of the heaviest crosses he had to carry was not being physically able to fast Holy Saturday, the eve of Easter Sunday. According to John the Deacon, Holy Saturday was a day where everyone, even little children, were required to fast. Gregory so desired to conform to the practice of that day, he turned to a very holy monk, well known for his sanctity. They prayed together and pleaded with God to give him the strength to fast, at least on Holy Saturday. Having done so, he was so restored to health, he was not only able to fast that holy day, but was cured of his malady and able to fast from that time on. The monks in the monastery were more than likely leaving the rule passed down by St. Benedict, who had died in 547 A.D. In 580, only 33 years after St. Benedict went to the Father, and 100 years after the date of his birth, the Lombards invaded the monastery of Monte Cassino, completely destroying every vestige of what Benedict and the early monks had built. Benedict's monks fled Monte Cassino and settled in Rome, near the Basilica of the Lateran, today known as the Cathedral of Rome, St. John Lateran. This is where most likely St. Gregory met the followers of St. Benedict and learned about the rule of St. Benedict. Gregory spent three years in cloister in the monastery. He was content. These were the best years of his life. He believed with all his heart that this was where he was called to be and this life he was to lead. Then, to his dismay, this solitary life was to come to an end when Pope Pelagius II ordained him a deacon of Rome and one of seven deacons of Rome. This plainly meant he had been summoned to live an active role in the church rather than the cloister life he so revered. Rome was once again under the heel of tyrants. 
The names change, but the modus operandi is the same. Rome was once again under the heel of tyrants, intent on pilfering and laying waste everything in their paths. His Holiness and all of Rome had to contend with new aggressors. The Lombards were moving south toward Italy and threatening Rome. Pope Pelagius II summoned Gregory, gave him a new title, papal ambassador, and asked him to join the official mission he was sending to the Byzantine court of Constantinople. There he was to extend Pope Pelagius' sincere good wishes and congratulations to Tiberius II, the new emperor, on his ascending the throne and to plead with him to send an army to defend Rome against the Lombards. Gregory obeyed and spent the next six years, possibly the most miserable of his life, in Constantinople, which he found garishly opulent compared with the austerity of his poor beloved Rome. To avoid all the petty gossip and little conspiracies inundating the court, and to safeguard his immortal soul from the worldly influences so prevalent there, Gregory spent most of his time alone, trying as best as he could to maintain the monastic life he had known in St. Andrews. By the grace of God, he was aided by several of his brother monks who had accompanied him to Constantinople. In the quietude of his quarters, he and his brother monks spent every waking moment practicing the austerities of the Benedictines, praying and studying Holy Scripture. One great positive from this time spent in Constantinople was his writing of a powerful treatise, Morals, the series of lectures he wrote on the book of Job. A great negative was that the emperor never gave Pope Pelagius military aid, and so Rome was still at the mercy of the Lombards. Gregory does battle over the attack on the resurrection. Gregory received a great deal of attention due to a controversy over the resurrection. He locked horns with Eutychius I, patriarch of Constantinople, who toward the end of his life had written and published a book attacking the church's teachings on the resurrection, as passed down to us by not only the early apostles, but by Jesus himself. In effect, Eutychius denied the resurrection. His principal thrust a heresy which alleged that the risen bodies of the elect would be impalpable, more light than air. Now, let us pause and reflect on what the patriarch was saying. What Eutychius was proposing was the elect, like Jesus, would be in essence ghosts without bodies. If what he was writing is true, then did Jesus' body rise from the dead? Not only was he denying the resurrection, but he attacked the very words of Jesus in Holy Scripture when he appeared to the eleven disciples. Why are you disturbed? Look at my hands and feet. It is really I. Touch me and see that a ghost does not have flesh and bones as I do. As he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. As they appeared still incredulous, Jesus asked them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of cooked fish which he ate in their presence. Luke 24, 39. Not only did Jesus show them his hands and feet, he ate the piece of fish they gave him. The spirits cannot eat. And this was Gregory's argument, the palpability of Christ's risen body. Gregory was taking a big chance going up against the patriarch of Constantinople, 
who is like the Pope in the eyes of the faithful of Constantinople. Their differences turn into very heated endless arguments, with neither side willing to acquiesce to the other. It became so long and bitter, the emperor had no recourse but to summon the two of them to appear before him and state their individual arguments concerning the issue at hand. Eutychius presented his arguments and Gregory his. The emperor agreed with Gregory and ordered Eutychius' book be burned. The battle had been so explosive, so tedious and wearing on their nerves, it thoroughly debilitated the both of them, causing them to fall seriously ill. Gregory regained his health, but Eutychius never recovered. He died, repudiating all that he had written, and with his last breath, made the statement, I confess that we shall all rise again in this flesh. Home at last, and the problem of the three chapters. Although his work in Constantinople turned out to be a failure because the emperor did nothing for the pope and the Roman people, it was not all in vain. Gregory learned a big lesson which would work in his favor during his pontificate. He could not count on ever receiving help from the Eastern Church of Constantinople. Although they talked about being two parts of the one church, Gregory learned that whatever help he needed will have to come from his resources at home. After a very long six years, which seemed like an eternity to our future saint, Gregory was summoned by the Pope and excused from any longer attending the court in Constantinople. Thank you, Jesus. A very grateful, relieved Gregory returned to Rome and his beloved monastery, St. Andrews, whereupon he was elected abbot. They were hoping they could keep him there in the monastery, but that was not God's plan. Gregory was an important person to the Roman population. He was thought of as Pope Pelagius' right-hand man. This is made very clear as a result of the following incident. Pope Pelagius was having problems in Istria, a province of Croatia on the Adriatic. Facing the division prevalent in the Sea of Istria, he did all he could to unite his bishops in Istria with the Holy See in Rome. But the spirit of rebellion and disobedience, coupled with pride that permeated the episcopate there, made this almost impossible. In spite of this, Pope Pelagius persisted, although it appeared to be of no avail initially. The bishops of Istria, of whom the bishop Aquilea was metropolitan, persisted in refusing to accept the decree of the Fifth Ecumenical Council, which had, under the dictates of Emperor Justinian, condemned certain writings of three deceased prelates, Theodore of Mopsuesta, Theodoret, and Ibas, called the Three Chapters. Severus the Metropolitan summoned in the following letter with his suffragate bishops to Rome, disregarded the summons, going instead at the instigation of the exarch Esmaragdus to Ravenna, where he remained a year. On his return to his see, he still held out, though many of his bishops conformed. A schism hence ensued in Istria, which continued during the life of Gregory the Great. St. Gregory wrote to Severus and his suffragan bishops, As when one walks in devious ways, takes anew the right path, the Lord embraces him with all eagerness. So afterwards, when one deserts the way of truth, he is more saddened with grief for him than he rejoiced over him 
with joy when he turned from error, since it is a less degree of sin not to know the truth than not to abide in it when known. And what is committed in error is one thing, but what is perpetrated knowingly is another. And we, from having formerly rejoiced in thy being incorporated in the unity of the church, are now the more abundantly distressed for thy dissociation from the Catholic society. Accordingly, we desire thee, at the instance of the bearer of this presence, according to the command of the most Christian and most serene emperor, to come with thy adherence to the threshold of the blessed apostle Peter, that a sinner being assembled by the will of God, judgment may be passed concerning the doubt that is entertained among you. The quest of Gregory to convert the Angles. One day he was walking through the slave market when his sights fell upon three light-complected, blonde young boys. Upon asking their nationalities, he was informed they were Angles, to which he replied, They are all well-named, for they have angelic faces. When he inquired where they were from, they replied they were from Deer, to which he responded, The Ida, from Wrath. Yes, verily, they shall be saved from God's wrath and called to the mercy of Christ. What is the name of the king of that country? Aela, they replied. Then must Alleluia be sung in Aela's land. Gregory was so moved by the innocence of the boys and their apparent lack of knowledge of the one true God, he pleaded with the Pope to allow him to travel to England to preach the gospel. The Pope granted him permission, and Gregory, in company of several of his brother monks, traveled to the land of the Angles, or as we know it today, Great Britain. But sadly, Gregory will have to wait for the opportunity to evangelize the Angles. When the people of Rome heard that their favorite clergyman had left for an indefinite time to travel to a foreign country, they created such an uproar, Pope Pelagius could do nothing but send a contingency after Gregory and his brother monks to fetch them back to Rome and the irate citizenry. He will have to wait until later on when he became Pope to follow his quest, his most ardent desire to share his most beloved church with the people of Great Britain. The Tradition Behind Offering 30-Day Masses As abbot of St. Andrews, Gregory had to face one of his most difficult decisions. It appears that one day, Gregory was sitting at the bedside of Justus, one of his dying monks, who, realizing his time on earth was coming to an end, confessed he had stolen three gold coins. Upon hearing this, Abbot Gregory forbid the other monks to speak to him or to visit him as he lay dying. Justus' body was denied a Christian burial and was not allowed to be interred in the monk's cemetery. Instead, his remains were buried under a dunghill, his only companion his ill-gotten three coins. Taking into consideration that the monk had repented of his sin, Abbot Gregory had mass offered for the repose of his soul for thirty days. Gregory later writes that when the thirty days were over, Justice's soul appeared to Copiosus, one of Gregory's monks, and told him he had undergone the most excruciating pain and endured what seemed like endless, intolerable suffering more than he could have ever borne, but for the grace which poured out from the masses that had been said for the repose of his soul those thirty days. 
he told his brother monk that as a result of those masses, his soul had been lifted up out of purgatory into heaven. As we have often said, God wastes nothing and is not past turning a negative into a positive, God writing straight with crooked lines. Through this negative, a positive resulted, one that would benefit the poor souls in purgatory for centuries to come. The custom of offering 30-day Masses or Gregorian Masses came about at this time. The Pope was dead, long live the Pope. The plague struck at the heart of the Church and the hearts of her children. Pope Pelagius, the sweet Christ on earth, was dead. Brave soldier fallen at the diabolical hands of the plague, which was costing so many lives. Everyone was destitute. They needed to have their vicar to lead them. But whom could they choose to carry on? It was almost unanimously decided that Gregory was the perfect choice to carry on the task of governing the church. He was elected overwhelmingly by the clergy and the people to his great consternation. But until they heard from the emperor in the east and received his sanction, Gregory would carry on the task before him of filling in, temporarily he hoped, the post vacated at the passing of Pope Pelagius. Poor monk, who only desired to serve God as a contemplative, is now thrust into the most important role in the world, carrying on the work of Peter. As a last attempt, he wrote to the emperor Maurice, pleading with him not to ratify his election as pope. But his letter was intercepted by Germanus, prefect of the city, who instead sent the emperor a letter telling him of the overwhelming reaction of the people, resulting in an anonymous vote for Gregory. Gregory called the faithful of Rome to join him on a procession praying the litany through all the streets of Rome. And joined they did, as thousands processed out from one church to the church which had preceded them, seven churches of Rome from seven regions joining together as one voice, one hope, supporting their new pope. Their focus? To pray as one mystical body of Christ as Santa Maria Maggiore, imploring our Mother Mary to intercede with our Lord to end the plague and begging forgiveness from her son for the many times they had sinned against him and his mother. Gregory of Tours, a contemporary historian of Gregory's time, wrote an account passed down to him from one who witnessed the whole marvelous event. While the plague still raged, the columns marched through the streets chanting, Kyrie eleison, and as they walked, people were falling and dying about them. Gregory inspired those poor people with courage, for he did not cease preaching and asked to have prayers made continually. It was as if God had heard and had pity on his children. No sooner had the procession come to an end, Rome experienced a sudden decline of victims succumbing to the plague. The plague and its miraculous end are remembered under the title Sant'Angelo, as the legend goes that the Archangel St. Michael was seen atop Castel Sant'Angelo, St. Michael the Archangel's castle, his sword drawn, announcing the end of the plague. Pope Gregory saw the vision above Adrian's castle, which is near the Vatican. He changed the name from Adrian's castle to Castel Sant'Angelo, in honor of St. Michael and the angels. He also renamed the bridge leading to the castle to the Bridge of the Angels. After that, 
The various statues of angels which still decorate the bridge were constructed. All the angels hold instruments of the Passion of Christ, as well as the lance and the veil of Veronica. A statue of St. Michael the Archangel sits atop the castle to this day. Rome had become a city of the dead. Those who had not died from the plague were devastated, their hearts broken as they looked for their homes that had been swept away by the floods that had preceded the plague and brought on its devastation. The plague over, Gregory set his sights upon rebuilding the city of Rome. He continued to tend those who had been stricken, offering aid and consolation, actively going from one victim to the other, bringing the sacraments, healing the bodies and souls of all he touched. This was not typical behavior for a pope. However, it was who Gregory was. Long live the pope. Papa, Papa, they cried out, welcoming their new pope, who had already made himself loved by all because of his charity, a true sweet Christ on earth. He was truly a sweet Christ on earth, a true apostle of our Lord. Although he well earned those titles, one of the subtitles we could have given this dear pope is the reluctant pope. When the news from Emperor Maurice was dispatched, confirming him as pope, Gregory's first action was to flee. He actually attempted to leave the city, but after having been caught and brought back to Rome, he realized that the life of contemplation and solitude he thought was God's plan for him was evidently not God's plan but Gregory's. So he accepted the Lord's plan for him, went back to old St. Peter's Basilica to ascend the chair of Peter, and a new pope greeted the faithful on September 3rd, 590. And the walk begins. From the day he was installed as the head of the Roman Catholic Church, Vicar of Christ, Shepherd of all Jesus' lambs on earth, he accepted his responsibilities with all full vigor. Joining mind with soul, he immediately went about instituting much-needed change. The Lord will only give Gregory 14 years to make his mark on the church and on the world, doing God's will and undoing the errors that had crept insidiously into the church at large. If the problems of the church were not enough, his body suffered mercilessly, battling severe stomach problems and ongoing gas attacks. In addition, he was subjected at times by debilitating bouts of fevers. Then, to compound all he had been enduring for years, the last seven years of his pontificate, he became besieged by cruel, crippling gout, robbing him of what little strength he had left. In spite of all this, his biographer Paul the Deacon says of him, he never rested. Although he never became reconciled with the position fostered upon him, that of being Pope, he attacked it with all the will and determination he believed worthy of the office he held. Gregory the Contemplative becomes Gregory the Pope. There is an expression, you can take the boy out of the farm, but you cannot take the farm out of the boy. And so it was with Gregory. Although now Pope, holding the most important position in the church, he still tried to live the simple monastic life he had embraced and so loved as a monk. To that end, he made a clean sweep of all that he considered unnecessary to his spiritual well-being. He got rid of just about all lay servants of one kind or another, whether they were cooks, pages, butlers, or help of any kind, 
and replaced them with clerics. He felt the need to focus his life and his work. He even appointed a vice dominus who was basically a housekeeper to take care of all worldly affairs and the personnel serving the papal household. There was a vile practice of actually charging money for liturgical services, such as ordinations, burials in churches, and for the conferring of the pallium. This smacked of simony, which was the buying and selling of sacred things. This had to go. St. Augustine tells us that when we sing, we pray twice. However, some deacons were not praying as much as performing, and so he did not want them to conduct the musical part of the Mass, lest they be chosen for their voices rather than the message. The Pope wields a mighty tool, the patrimony of St. Peter. Emperor Constantine created a means of supporting the infant church in Rome by giving gifts to the church. His greatest gift, and that which most likely began what is known today as the great patrimony of St. Peter, was the first church of St. John Lateran, which is today the Cathedral of Rome. This became a tradition in which wealthy families will leave property to the church, whether it be property in Rome or in Sicily or any other parts of Europe. The Pope was the administrator of these gifts. Pope Gregory used his patrimony to aid the poor shepherds, farmers, and citizens of Italy and Sicily who had become victims of the plague. He was very wise in what he did. He issued orders to his vicars in Sicily and in other parts of Italy to treat farmers kindly and fairly. He would give loans to those farmers in need, who would then turn around and donate portions of the income from their crops to the Vatican treasury. Now this could be in the form of money, or better yet, in times of need, part of their crops, grain, rice, wheat, whatever was needed, which Gregory then used to distribute to the starving, needy citizens of Rome. It was in effect welfare, only given with love and true concern for the flock he shepherded. This was a brilliant use of church funds, so there was always income being deposited into the Vatican treasury. Even though, as he was dying, the cupboard was bare, so to speak, all the fruits having been given to the people. Pope Gregory took this task of feeding the poor very seriously. In fact, we read that on one occasion, when a Roman citizen died on the streets from starvation, Pope Gregory blamed himself. He put himself on suspension and did not allow himself to perform his priestly functions for a period of time. This was his own punishment on himself. In addition, he used the treasury of the Vatican to pay ransoms to rescue captives from the Lombards, who were threatening Rome and all the papal lands. Sadly, this practice died with the Pope. Not much in the way of bequeaths took place after that. But the Lord knew when there was a need, and he filled that need with his powerful Pope, Gregory the Great. As a preacher, Gregory liked to make his sermon a part of the sacred solemnity of the Mass, choosing as his subject the gospel for the day. There are a number of his homilies, ending always with a moral lesson. As he was known for his powerful, instructive sermons, further enhanced with excerpts from the Bible, the church was brimming over with Romans from the different parts of the city. Pope Gregory, Peacemaker no sooner had Gregory been consecrated to fill the chair of Peter 
than he found himself faced with the problem of the Lombards and their unrelenting brutal attacks on Rome. One of the greatest problems Gregory faced from the Lombards was that they embraced Arianism, a heresy which had been condemned by the Council of Nicaea, but which had maintained a stronghold in the church for centuries after. Basically, what Arianism espoused was that there was only one God, God the Father. Jesus was not divine. They used the scripture passage from St. Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8, 5-6, to justify their claims. It reads like this, There is no God but one. Even though there are so-called gods in the heavens and on the earth, there are, to be sure, many such gods and lords. For us there is one God, the Father from whom all things come and for whom we live, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom everything was made and through whom we live. Arius and his followers used this scripture passage to determine that Jesus was not divine, but that he was inferior to the Father. They also thought that the Holy Spirit was a creation of Jesus. In short, Jesus was not divine. He created the Holy Spirit, therefore there was no trinity. Even though Constantine condemned Arianism in the Council of Nicaea, he recanted some years later and actually embraced Arianism. They became very powerful in the church. It was said that at one point in the history of the church, 80% of the bishops were Arian. St. Jerome is quoted as having said, The whole world awoke and groaned in astonishment to find itself Arian. Pope Gregory becomes a military leader. Pope Gregory appealed to the emperor in Constantinople for military help against the Lombards. He soon learned that expecting help from the emperor was futile, as the emperor's apathetic representative chose to avoid the situation. If Rome and her children were to be saved, it would have to be handled by our monk turned pope. Remarkably, Gregory showed great military acumen. He began by fortifying Rome's defenses and then sent reinforcements to other cities in the Lombards' sites. He clearly recognized how dire the situation was, as reflected by some of his letters. When the Lombards and their king reached the walls of Rome, Pope Gregory went out to meet them. Our Pope, with the dignity of a powerful representative of a state, coupled diplomacy with a promise of paying an annual tariff and convinced King Agilulf to withdraw his Lombard troops. He knew what had to be done to protect and save his people from the heretics, and he was not beyond dipping into the nearly depleted treasury to do it. He was able to keep them at bay for nine years, during which time Pope Gregory endeavored to bring about a peaceful settlement between the Lombards and the Byzantine Emperor, and almost succeeded when it was sabotaged by the same representative, Romanus, who had refused to help Pope Gregory nine years before. Gregory was attempting to do what the emperor would not do, while the emperor's representative hid out, avoiding all the unpleasantries. The Lombards had made serious advances into the city. All about him, Gregory saw the destitution of the poor refugees, left deprived of all they possessed by the invaders, and he provided for them 
asking the different dioceses to use their collections to help these downtrodden brothers and sisters who could not help themselves. He provided not only food for their stomachs, but food for their souls. Recognizing their needs, he wrote passionate sermons expounding on God's mercy and perfect love, and then turning to those who could alleviate some of their suffering, he expressed the need for each citizen to care for his less fortunate brother. Once again, seeing the futility of trying to reconcile these two powers, Pope Gregory took it into his own hands and brought about a truce protecting Rome and the surrounding cities. The Lord, desiring to have all his children with him in the kingdom, used King Aguilulf's wife, Theodelinda, a Bavarian princess and a Catholic. She became one of Pope Gregory's greatest supporters. So ardent was her love for her faith, she instructed the Lombards in the true faith, resulting in their renouncing the Arian creed and adopting the Catholic faith. Once again, we see the Lord using a negative to bring about a positive, the salvation of souls. What Pope Gregory the Great did in our estimation was to take the bull by the horns. Decisions had to be made. He had to move on his feet. He could not get in contact with the Italian representative of Emperor Maurice, who was hoping to see the Lombards crush Pope Gregory and the Romans. So Pope Gregory took upon himself powers he didn't really have, and he got away with it. True, he had a friend in the Lombard king's wife, but by and large, he had only the power of God and his own faith that his God would use that power to protect him and his flock. And by God, God did. The Pope lays down the path to holiness, required by all who endeavor to serve. After all this tiresome intrigue and matters of the world, Pope Gregory was glad to be returning to his desk. Remember, as much as he fought against the powers of Europe, he was still a monk. His greatest desire had been to be a hermit. God chose not to have him serve in that capacity, but if he had his brothers, he would have been in one of his monasteries, silently praying and praising the Lord. Pope Gregory began his quest to lead his bishops down the path to holiness, that they might lead others. He became deeply involved with writing guides to those who will lead the faithful lambs to the shepherd. With this in mind, Pope Gregory wrote and published his book, Liber Pastoralis Cura, outlining the duties of the office of the bishop. It was actually begun during his time in Constantinople as part of the Magna Moralia, and then completed as a favor to his mentor, Leander of Seville, who used it as a guide for his church in Spain. In this book, he clearly lays down the lines he, as Bishop of Rome, promised to follow. However, the thrust of the book and his teachings to the bishops is not that of a spiritual director or father to the faithful. He more or less assumes that if his bishops have attained that position, their ability to lead their flock has already been established. No, he speaks more of the role of the bishops as managers of the flock. He outlines what is required of the bishop to be a physician of souls. He insists on discipline of his bishops to focus their daily efforts and their lives to be sort of a liaison between the faithful and God. 
The bishop must be the go-between. In this dissertation, he pounds home that this is not a job for those who are not extremely qualified. St. Gregory was seeing this as one of the first drawbacks in appointing a person who was not completely qualified for the job. He impressed this on them. He states, Only one who is already skilled as a physician of souls is fit to undertake the supreme rule of the episcopate. Supreme rule. That's how important he believes the vocation of being a physician of souls, a leader of the flock, a bishop is, to deal with the physical and spiritual needs of his flock. Now, remember, he opens up this teaching to his bishops by stating that he too is committing to live the same life himself that he requires of them as bishop of Rome and head of the church. Practice what you preach. You know, although he is an acclaimed doctor of the church, has been given the title Gregory the Great, which he was, his teachings are very simple, very basic. We recall some years back when we went to Fonda, New York, to make a television program on the life of St. Kateri Tekawitha. We met a young Franciscan priest, Father Jim Plafkin, who worked with us on the program. A few weeks after we returned home, he sent us a letter thanking us for the time spent and our devotion to the saints. He ended his letter with the statement, Don't neglect your prayer life. You can't give what you don't have. This is in effect what St. Gregory was telling his bishops. He tells the bishops the great gift they have been given to teach and counsel their flock. What an opportunity. They can mold the minds and souls, the lives of those they have been entrusted with. It's a special gift not to be taken lightly. The bishop has the ability to cleanse souls, to heal wounds that keep his flock separated from their God and their church. Take this role very seriously, Pope Gregory tells them. He tells the bishop to constantly look inward as his soul is also in danger. He tells the bishop to keep in mind that he is also a sinner, weak and extremely vulnerable from attacks by the enemy. He should never become overly impressed with himself or think that the weakness of the flesh is only for the souls under his care. The greater the job, the more attacks will be thrown at you. We recall with great love our blessed Pope John Paul II. To us, this was truly a saint, and yet we have been told that he will go to confession several times a day. This is because of the great burden put upon him to carry out the ministry he had been given. Pope Gregory assumed the same burdens will be on him and his bishops. This is the key to Gregory's life as Pope, for he indeed practiced what he preached. Not only that, but for centuries long after his going to the Father, his book, Liber Pastoralis Cura, served as a textbook for bishops in the episcopate. But the greatest gift of this jewel, left by St. Gregory the Great, declared one of only two popes as the Great until Pope John Paul II, is that because it was adopted and followed faithfully by the shepherds of the church, it shaped the integrity of the church. The Emperor Maurice had it translated into Greek. Bishop Leander distributed throughout Spain. Augustine of Canterbury brought it to England, 
where 300 years later, King Alfred successfully took on the task of translating it into Anglo-Saxon. Charlemagne summoned a council where he directed all his bishops to study it, and he so believed in the guidelines laid down by Gregory the Great, he gifted each new bishop being consecrated with a copy of this book as part of the ceremony. For centuries, Pope Gregory's ideals were those of the clergy of the West, one universal truth spoken with one universal voice. In his homilies, he brought the wisdom of St. Augustine of Hippo to the scholars of his time, and until, through him, they started to study St. Augustine themselves, Pope Gregory was the last word on Augustinian theology. He clarified several doctrines which had not in the past been adequately defined. It is said of him, It is impossible to conceive what would have been the confusion, the lawlessness, the chaotic state of the Middle Ages without the medieval papacy, and of the medieval papacy, the real father is Gregory the Great. In this, Pope Gregory's influence on not only the church, but on the world, its governments, its rules of behavior, and much more extended far beyond his lifetime. Pope Gregory composed the calendar of festivals. For his most extraordinary life, his numerous writings and encyclicals, he is venerated as the fourth doctor of the church. Among other reforms, he enforced the celibacy of the clergy. Down through the ages, he had been a hit-and-miss situation. From the time of St. Paul, married clergy was permitted. He did state that once a man became a bishop, he was not allowed to have a wife. Some popes were very firm on the celibacy of the priesthood. Others left it up to the local diocese to make those decisions. However, even where a bishop was married, he was not allowed to live in the same house as his wife. Gregory, however, made it very clear that he wanted priests and bishops to practice celibacy, or at least continence. He determined and set down the role of priests and deacons. He actually took away several duties of deacons, believing they should be the duties of an ordained priest or bishop. Much of the chanting that was done by the deacons was done away with during the papacy of St. Gregory. He was the driving force in the strengthening of the papacy. Pope Gregory was so involved in refining and changing the Mass, there is no way to determine just how involved he was in forming the liturgy as we know it today. One thing is for sure, he had his fingers in all of it, and what he left us has been lauded down through the centuries. He was very particular about who could do what in the canon of the Mass. For instance, he forbade deacons to sing any of the musical portions of the Mass other than singing the Gospel. He dictated so much that had to do with sacred music. We can only point out some of the most obvious of his contributions. Among his many achievements, he is credited with the antiphonary, the introduction to new styles in church music, the composition of several famous hymns, and the creation of the Schola Cantorum, the famous training school for singers. Worthy of his title, Pope St. Gregory the Great worked tirelessly right until the angel of death summoned him home. The Gregorian sacramentary and the Gregorian chant 
according to John the Deacon, whose testimony is most reliable, what we call Gregorian chant today is definitely attributed to Pope St. Gregory the Great. This type of chanting has been used for centuries up to and including today. Going back before St. Gregory, it was called Roman chant and even Ambrosian chant, but St. Gregory put it together in a formalized church chant. As for his contribution to music, we have the epitaph of Pope Honorius, which dates back to his death in 638. Gifted with divine harmony, the shepherd leads his sheep to life. For while following the footsteps of Holy Gregory, you have won your reward. According to this, it was taught in Rome less than 40 years after the death of St. Gregory that the greatest praise for a music-loving pope was to compare him to his predecessor, Pope Gregory. What that meant, in effect, was that the music developed by St. Gregory became the barometer for magnificent church chant. He developed it to a point where everyone aspired to achieve what he gave the church in sacred music. Further proof of Pope St. Gregory's involvement with the Gregorian chant and other chants used in the Mass. The feast known to have been introduced after St. Gregory used the main melodies borrowed from older feasts. The text of the chants are taken from the Itala version, while as early as the first half of the 7th century, St. Jerome's correction had been generally adopted. The frequent occurrence in the plain chant melodies of cadences molded on the literary curses showed that they were composed before the middle of the 7th century when the curses went out of use. Pope Gregory's dream of evangelizing the Angles begins. The Lord must have filled the heart of young Gregory to convert the Angles, the people of Britain. He was convinced that it was his mission to convert the heathens. Pope Gregory had a driving seal for the conversion of all those in the world who did not know Jesus and his church. We read earlier in this chapter his desire to go to England and evangelize the Angles. The conversion of England was one that was nearest and dearest to his heart. Apparently, a Frankish princess married into a noble family of Kent on the condition that she could practice her religion without hindrance. This began the spread of devotion to Catholicism in the area, but unfortunately, it was ignored for some 20 years by the bishops of Gaul. Imagine Pope Gregory's deep joy and hope that turned into concern and displeasure when he heard that there were Englishmen who took upon themselves the task of sharing the faith only to be ignored when they asked the bishops of Gaul for preachers. Pope Gregory was horrified when this came to his attention. In 596, Pope Gregory set out to bring his dream into fruition. He began with the purchase of English slaves, young boys, 17 or 18 years old. His plan was to educate them in a monastery in Italy, from where, after graduation, they would be ordained priests and then return to their own country and serve those who had converted and those who needed to know more about the church. Then Pope Gregory picked 40 monks from the monastery of St. Andrew to evangelize to the Angles in England. Confident they would be strong and resolute, faithful to the teachings of the church, he sent them forth on a mission. 
under the wing of their prior, the Holy Augustine, who became St. Augustine of Canterbury. Satisfied that the young monks were armed with the teachings of St. Benedict, Pope Gregory blessed them and dispatched them post-haste. Theirs was not an easy journey. First off, they were Italian. Language and customs were a barrier. The journey was difficult. At one point, the monks wanted to return to Rome, but St. Augustine went instead and was able to get fortified support from Pope Gregory. Then, when they finally reached their goal, a meeting with the King of Kent, he advised them he had no intention of changing the beliefs of the people of his realm, but because they seemed so sincere, he not only would allow them to evangelize as best they could, but he would give them a place to set up their Benedictine monastery in Canterbury. As it turned out, the king finally converted and was baptized. This was a great source of joy to Pope Gregory and the beginning of real conversion in England. Pope Gregory Battles Heresies Pope Gregory never relented in his pursuit to evangelize and correct the serious errors running wild in his time. He made every effort, turning over any and every leaf, to expose and extinguish the deadly fire of paganism in Gaul, Donatism in Africa, and the divisive schism of the three chapters in North Italy and Istria. He tried every means to bring about the conversion of heretics, schismatics, and pagans, with inducements, admonishments, and finally warnings, sincerely trying every peaceful means before he had no recourse but to resort to taking a stronger course of action. If all his attempts at bringing about a peace-field resolution failed, he was not above resolving the matters at hand in the manner of justice of his time, forcefully bringing about a solution, or if all fails, recruiting the help of the civil government. Then he had the situation in Spain, which was not good. Through his old friend, Bishop St. Leander of Seville, Gregory was kept aware of all that was taking place in Spain. To his holiness' sorrow, the church in Spain operated autonomously, without any contact with or direction from the Holy See. Oh, they were Catholic and loyal to the church, but had little or nothing to do with her and her vicar, and without that union with the vicar of Christ, the Pope, they were in great danger of either falling into heresy or becoming schismatic. None too far to be loved and protected, Pope Gregory set out to eradicate this scourge on mankind, countering with the truth. In Africa, the heresy of Donatism had cropped up again. It arose out of the appointment of Sicilian as Bishop of Carthage, whom the party of Donatus claimed to have been consecrated by a traditor, a sinner who had repented, and so they claimed the consecration invalid. The schismatics preached that sacraments administered by an unworthy minister were invalid and that sinners or traditores could not be members of the church. Those they were referring to as sinners were those who had renounced their faith during the persecution of Diocletian in 303 to 305, out of fear of death. Whereas the church forgave the penitents and welcomed them back, the Donatists were hard and unforgiving, refusing to accept the validity of the sacraments they administered.
The schism was overcome by the work chiefly of St. Optatus, Bishop of Milevis, and St. Augustine of Hippo. St. Optatus wrote a disputation of the statement proposed by the Donatist bishop that scripture proves the Donatist heresy which alleges that the sacrifice of a sinner is defiled. In other words, the Donatist bishop was, in a word, proposing that if a priest is a sinner, the sacrament he confers is invalid. St. Optatus went on to prove that baptism, even when conferred by a sinner, is valid, for it is conferred by Christ, the minister or priest being only the instrument. In this work, St. Optatus was the first to declare the doctrine that the grace of the sacraments is derived from the opus operatum of Christ, independently of the worthiness of the minister. St. Augustine of Hippo fought the Donatist heresy all his days as Bishop of Hippo, and because of his efforts, the Church was victorious. St. Augustine tells of a number of fanatics, Donatists, who believed that to die a martyr's death was an express ticket to heaven. Consequently, some of them would mention they were chosen to die a martyr's death, and they were well fed and clothed. During the time of paganism, Donatists will come in great numbers to any sacrifice, not to destroy idols, but to be martyred. Now, as the story goes, one day a group of these future martyrs, their stomachs bulging over their trousers, approached a young man and handed him a sword to use to kill them, threatening they will kill him if he refused to do it. He protested. He feared that those he had not killed first, upon seeing their comrades dead, would change their minds, and then, revenging their friend's death, will kill him. So he was able to convince them to allow him to bind them. They readily assented to this, and tightly bound and defenseless, he proceeded to beat each and every one of them and continued on his way. St. Augustine of Hippo also taught, in communion with church teaching, that it was the office of priest, not the personal character of the priest that gave validity to the conferring of the sacraments or their celebration as during Mass, for example. This is one of the truths that was attacked during the Reformation but is still the teaching of Mother Church till today. Pope Gregory's dealings with the Jewish people. In his dealings with the Jewish people, his attitude toward them might cause one to paint him as a defender and guardian of their beliefs, advocating their resistance to knowing and accepting the Son of God, consequently contradicting his seal for conversion. There is no doubt that he considered evangelization and conversion of pagans as one of his primary functions as Pope. But it was his sense of justice which made it impossible for him not to force on them certain things, such as compulsory baptism. He felt strongly they had a right to civil freedom, as well as the right to worship according to their beliefs, as long as it was within the boundaries of the law but he will not allow the Jews to exceed what had been granted them by civil law. He drew the line at any possibilities of Jews owning Christian slaves. A just man, his mercy was not limited to those whom he considered his own flock of the Catholic Church, 
but to our Jewish brethren as well. Most likely, he considered the Old Testament the basis on which our faith was born. He also honored their faith belief as being that of our Savior Jesus, his mother Mary, and all the apostles. So in a sense, they were family. He wanted them to be able to worship in their own houses of worship. An incident happened in Sicily which brought this point home clearly. He had made it clear he will not tolerate the closing of synagogues. So when a zealous convert from Judaism in Sicily took over a synagogue and turned it into a Christian church, there was an uproar in the Jewish community. He put a huge crucifix and a statue of Our Lady in the building. The Jews complained to Pope Gregory. He quickly put out the fire, which could have had disastrous results in the church's relationship with the Jews. By ordering these holy symbols of our faith to be removed with reverence from the synagogue and then upon doing this to return it to its rightful worshippers. Pope Gregory had to use a great deal of tact in handling these situations, especially the zealous evangelization of the Jews. There were many Jews who had settled in Provence. Two of the bishops of the area, St. Virgilius, Bishop of Arles, and Theodore, Bishop of Marseille, in their great zeal for conversion of the Jews, did not hesitate to exercise undue force in the implementation of evangelization of these Jewish brethren. Pope Gregory, hearing of this, had to correct them. How do you do this without discouraging your bishops to continue with the work of evangelization? Always the good manager, he wrote to Virgilius and to Theodore, praised their work and their good intentions, but recommended they forsake the corporal path they had chosen and instead travel the spiritual road and convert through prayers and preaching. St. Gregory later bestowed upon Virgilius the title of Pontifical Vicar. Granting him this honor afforded Pope Gregory the use of Virgilius as intermediary between the bishops of Gaul and the Apostolic See. Virgilius proved worthy of the trust placed in him. With his new position and responsibility in tow, he immediately set his sights on reading his Diocese of Siboney, and Pope Gregory, equally eager to stamp out the paganism and the heresy of Siboney, as well as other errors widely prevalent in Gaul, urged King Childebert to assist Virgilius in freeing the churches of Gaul and Germania of Siboney. Pope Gregory sent a mandate to Virgilius, urging him to bring together a council against Simony and to persuade the Bishop of Marseille to reform his diocese. Again, using no partiality and most certainly not one to compromise, he went about correcting whosoever required it. Pope Gregory sent a letter to St. Virgilius and the Bishop of Autun strongly questioning the reason behind their lack of involvement in the scandal of a woman who had originally been a religious who was forcibly against her will married. In art, Pope Gregory is often depicted wearing a tiara and pontifical robes. He is carrying a book or musical instrument or at times holding a staff with a double cross. His symbol is the dove. His deacon Peter writes that he was taking down a homily being dictated by the Pope on the other side of a drape which separated them. When the Pope stopped speaking, 
Peter made a hole in the drape to see if the Pope was all right. There, seated on the other side, was a dove on top of Pope Gregory's head, with his beak in between the Pope's lips, and when the Pope spoke, the dove took his beak from his lips. Peter took down the Pope's words, and when the Pope ceased speaking, Peter once again looked through the hole he had made. There, on the other side of the hole, was the dove, who had once again placed his beak between the Pope's lips. That he was inspired by the Holy Spirit is more than an apparent fact. Why not the dove, the symbol of the Holy Spirit? Farewell, sweet Christ on earth. As if our dear Pope did not have enough to keep him occupied during his lifetime, and especially during the 13 years he reigned as pontiff, he suffered all his life from physical problems, especially gastric or stomach problems. He also suffered seriously and painfully from the gout, which incapacitated him to his bed for two years. And these ailments were not things that happened towards the end of his life, but all throughout his papacy. And with all of that, he never stopped working. On March 12, 604, the Lord called him home. There was a great outpouring for his canonization as soon as he died. He was actually proclaimed a saint by the people immediately. Beloved Pope, we hate to say goodbye for now. It has been a great joy and honor to be writing about you. His body is interred in St. Peter's Basilica. What you have passed on, most beloved Pope St. Gregory the Great, has lived on and will live on through your brother popes and bishops following in your footsteps, keeping alive the word of God. And that is why our church will never die. Dear family, pray for your pope and your bishop and all the bishops that the Holy Spirit will always guide them and protect them. We love our popes, our true sweet Christ on earth, just as we love our dear church. Learn about the treasures awaiting you, left by our dear Jesus himself in the repository of the church. We love you. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here is how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply, with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app, and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel, where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN, plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.